Hello, and we are live with another episode of Absolute AppSec. This is episode 19. I'm uh, Ken Johnson, one of the hosts, uh, joined by Seth Law, my co-host. Hey, Welcome once again. Last week, if you missed it, we had on uh, Chris Gates, a good friend of Seth and I, Seth, Seth and, I and uh, you, go, you should go check that out if you haven't watched it yet. Uh, pretty good overview of purple teaming, um, upcoming preview of one of his talks, um, his keynote, just a lot of good things. Uh, his origin story, like a lot of little uh, interesting tidbits there. So that was uh, last episode. Uh, how are you, Seth? How are you doing this week? Hey, I'm I'm hanging in there. It was a it was a good one. Um, we did actually open up Slack too, right? Uh, for anybody that wants to join the conversation or get a hold of us or send in topics or even just you know throw stuff at us virtually, if you go to the website absoluteappsec.com, uh, there's a link there to actually sign up for Slack. You can go ahead and jump on into the general channel and give us a shout out. Nice. Yeah. yeah. Other than that, I, there's still to do stuff on my list as far as the show goes, including you know getting us listed on both uh, Apple's podcasts and you know Stitcher and some of the other uh, audio formats for pushing out the the different episodes. Uh, that'll be happening soon enough. It's more of a more of the fact that we hit summer and now you know the kids are out of school and. We're both lazy, right? Right, Ken? That's what it is. <laughs> yeah, yeah, super lazy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but the other thing is, right, you know, Ken's been dealing with the fact that he's he he has to he has to become a Microsoft employee, you know, within a within a, a, a specific period of time, right? <laughs> yeah, that's been an uh I like Oh, actually before before we talk about that, um Okay. On to do's, uh, I owe people. So I was supposed to have mailed some stuff to people. So, uh, I will do that likely this week. Um, but I've been traveling and uh, excuses, 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 excuses. I'll, I'll get that stuff out soon, but I owe some folks, uh, some stuff. So, but yeah, so, um, GitHub, uh, I mean, I think most people that watch probably know I work for GitHub and, um, so that news came out. The, the interesting thing, Seth, was that when it, so when everybody basically everybody was talking about this, when I say everybody, everybody in my little social, our little social network uh, was talking about this. And um, what's funny is I, I didn't know anything about it, literally like not a clue until other people were talking about it and p- pasting it on, um, you know, Slack and Twitter and all that. So that was how I found out was through the and Sunday night. Like there was obviously a lot of speculation about it because that's when the, uh, I think it was Bloomberg or someone came out and said it was going to happen. Yeah. Yeah. And so that's, I saw that and I'm like, Whoa, like that wouldn't, I knew at that point that it wouldn't come out like that unless it was very likely true. So, um, I mean, not (laughs) not the media doesn't say stuff that isn't true, but, had a pretty good feeling on that one. So, so, so uh, what you're saying is that GitHub did not consult you as an application security professional on whether or not going, you know, becoming Microsoft 
or becoming a portion of Microsoft was a good idea. I know it's hard to believe, but uh, it seems like some missed due diligence there. Well, maybe the, maybe the application security guys from Microsoft check that out because they're they're typic they're the ones that are acquiring you, right? Not the other way around, but still. <laughs> Actually, I'm I'm interested to meet those folks. As a matter of fact, um, hopefully we get that opportunity. But um, yeah, I, I mean that. Uh, it's interesting that you say that um, at Hack West this year, one of our speakers was from Microsoft and she was talking about, um, here, let, me, let me let me pull up her name really quick. Um, she was talking about Tanya Janka, she, at, at She Hacks Purple, right? I know she's like a Microsoft advocate, but she's going around talking about OWASP top 10 and how they implement, uh, you know, a secure SDLC at Microsoft. It was pretty interesting. Um, but she's kind of an outreach person rather than somebody that, that, I mean, she's, she's on the like engineering teams, but it's a lot more about, you know, coordination and things like that, but all very OWASP related. Let me I'll pull it up here. So, so apparently I know more people at Microsoft than you do. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> yeah. For one. Um, <laughs> although I did get to see the CEO this week at the, uh, all hands on uh, Tuesday, gosh, Monday, it's yesterday. Um, so I did get to, to, to the CEO spoke to all of us. Um, probably won't go into too much about what it was, what was said just because of, you know, confidentiality. I will point out David Corsi is cracking me up with uh, this uh, little, that little, uh, he's got a clippy image. It says, it looks like you're trying to host a podcast. Would you like some help with that? <laughs> Super funny. I mean, the jokes have been, I mean, that's probably been one of the more enjoyable aspects uh, from Twitter is just watching the the awesome jokes that have come out about all this. Um, you know, I know there's mixed reactions and like, honestly, you know, I, I don't, I, there's mixed reactions on it um, in terms of outside the company. I can tell you internally, it's been overwhelmingly positive from, from, from everybody I've seen, it's been very positive. So, um, and yeah, and also like the one thing I don't think a lot, I don't know if a lot of people think about this, but like, so if, if you're, if your company gets acquired, right. Well, as a private company, if you're going to like, let's say you're an employee, uh, or you're just a part of the company and your goal is to make any sort of, um, money off, you know, stock options or anything like that. Usually the goal of a private company in, in, especially in Silicon Valley, the goal is right. Like, uh, IPO or get acquired or something like that. Right. So now <clears throat> the, the difficulty in like an IPO though, is that now you've got pressures from, um, shareholders from board members that are in the, and, and the general public. And that, that becomes, it becomes more stressful than this type of situation where you've got a company like ours operating independently, but with the backing of a global um, corporation. And um, when you look at it from that standpoint, the um, yes, there's still pressure. Sure. Of course you have to perform. That's what a business is about, but um, it's very, it's very different from like having IPO. And at the same time, everybody, you know, 
ideally in this situation, and I can't speak to it because I actually don't have any hard numbers and I, I don't know anything yet. But typically when something like this happens, it's good for all the employees, you know, at least fiscally. And, um, you know, so you've got that going for you. And then in terms of the the, the culture and the, and the company, I think everybody has, everybody I know or I'm close to has said, has at least pointed out the fact that, you know, in, in recent times, four to five years, Microsoft has been doing a lot of, I'm doing a lot to try and um, basically expand into the open source realm and support open source and um, just becoming sort of a different company under the the current CEO's leadership. So, yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't necessarily see it as a completely bad thing. Right. I mean, obviously if you're a Microsoft competitor in any of those spaces, you're probably moving your code off of GitHub is, you know, but, you know, realistically, as long as there is some somewhat of a firewall, somewhat of a separation between the two, I don't see it as a, as a huge issue, right? I mean, you're still, you're still trusting that Microsoft's going to keep your data safe, whether it's, you know, you're using the you know, Xbox Live, you're using some of their other services. I, I don't necessarily see GitHub as as going away or changing that much. And from what you've said as well, and what, what I'm kind of seeing, I, I feel like it will be pretty hands off. Um, at least from like somebody from the outside looking in realistically, I'll, I'll still use GitHub. Right? I, you know, so. Yeah. I mean, I had seen a few security people mention like, well, um, and honestly, we're going to have one of them on, uh, Robert Fuller, he, uh, I gave him through some dates. So Mubix on Twitter, uh, Rob Fuller, uh, again, a, a friend of Seth and I, uh, he's going to come on and he had, you know, he had an opinion and he's just not, I'm not singling him out. There were several, there were lots of folks that were like, well, um, like you said, like, oh, well, I don't want Microsoft looking at my code. But what I would say to that is that, um, and again, I'm not a public spokesperson, right for github uh, you know this is i just happen to work there but if you ask if you were to ask me i would tell you that this is one of those places where people care very dearly about your privacy um more so than any i mean like i, I just don't think i can overstate that as uh, uh enough really honestly like it's or i can't over basically you know what i'm trying to say like it, I can't say it enough. Like people really care about your privacy, about protecting um, users code, about protecting their non uh, anonymity. Um, just things in general that like the public doesn't know, or maybe some people know because they know people at GitHub, but that's something that's cared about deeply and is ingrained in the culture. So I think you'd have to, uh, it would be, <laughs> It's unlikely that that it's very. I would say, in my opinion, it's not going to happen. Like that's that's not a concern you need to worry about. But again, I'm not a spokesperson for the company. I just happen to work there. So, so can you tell me what what tools you use internally to look at everyone's code? Is that? <laughs> oh wait, wait, wait. Sorry, that's the that's, that's the wrong direction. <laughs> yeah. No. Um, yeah. Jerk. Um, yeah. No, but I just, I saw it and it may be, it, it's just like, I'm being very politically correct, I think right now, but it, like the, the basic gist is that's, that's not a real, that's not a real fear. It isn't yeah. like, I can tell you from having worked there, like that's not a real thing, but people, uh, have, you know, I mean, people have all kinds of fears. So, you know, rational or otherwise, 
whatever. Yeah. I mean, if you were worried about the protecting your code, right, um, and it was that sensitive, most likely you wouldn't be using GitHub in the first place, right? I mean, or you'd be using a private instance. Um, but that, but that being said, right? Okay, it's Microsoft. What what are you, your developers using to actually access and write that code? Okay, are they using, you know, Windows ten and it's home phoning home, right? Like, how much control do you have there as well? And there's just a lot of like other variables that probably go into that that realistic threat assessment. Um, everybody's knee jerk reaction during an acquisition is typically, oh no, what you know. What's going to change? Why are they doing it? Um, and obviously, you'll have more insight into that as far as you know what the what the leadership there at at GitHub and at Microsoft is saying about their their interest in GitHub. So, yeah, I mean, I can't again, I can't speak to some of the more you know the things that are certainly confidential, but I can the the the, the things that have been shared publicly are, and this was re, re, reiterated several many times, I should say. Um, which was we have we have uh, cultivated a um, community. We've we've helped diversity and inclusion with software development, with reaching, basically enabling software developers, um, and putting that sort of uh, build building up a, a larger base of software. Um, development and and doing positive things for that community, and uh, that's something Microsoft wants to sort of learn. At least that's the again publicly. This has been made public. Like the the goal is to sort of allow GitHub to sort of teach Microsoft how to um, get there. I guess if that makes any sense. But yeah, I mean, I understand it. I totally get it. And Microsoft's a big business, and I, I I totally get and understand I'm sensitive to those that are uh, concerned, you know, or were concerned or whatever. I will say, on the other hand, and I'm not going to state the company name, but uh, Chris Gates, who was on last week, had a funny tweet, and it's actually super, super true, too. Uh, if you look at this company's, like, uh, vulnerability releases, um He's like, sure, move move all your code to this other company until it gets pwned, you know, or like until there's a remote code execution vulnerability on there. And that made me that made me at least chuckle because it's he's not wrong. Like, um, but yeah, I'm not putting down any specific company. I just thought it was more of a funny tweet. Uh, yeah, I mean, the risk is always there. And then, the, uh, you know, yeah, I, I don't know if there's really much more to say to that outside of I think it'll be interesting to watch how Microsoft goes about that. I mean, it does make, it brings up questions to me having been around for a while about, okay, they've got their like team foundation server or whatever they're like their own code repository tool tool. So, you know, where did it come into play that, Hey, we're going to acquire GitHub as well. Maybe they're moving some of their back end of that. It, it, you know, there's, there's other things that are coming into play there that are question marks for me, just watching from the outside. Um, but, you know, again, you know, as far as hosting my code and using GitHub services, I don't that that's kind of the least of my worries or the least of my like questions when it comes to it. Um, so yeah, everybody's got their own take on it, and I, I it's been interesting to watch for sure. Yeah, because um, well, I mean, I will say like at a certain point, I just I couldn't go on Twitter for like about twelve hours. 
<laughs> I've got, I was like, all right, I can't do this anymore. I can't watch Twitter. Like, you know, it was just because it was just too, too raw or it was too, it was too, yeah, it was too. Yeah. Because you're, you know, you're finding out this news and then, you, you know, you've got all these Twitter is a place that people go to pretty quickly voice an opinion. And that's not the best place to go and read material as you're, uh, as something's occurring that you're still figuring out like how you feel about it. You know what I mean? So I think you sort of have to feel like for me, I had to figure out how I felt about it first before like going and reading through everybody else's sort of take on it. So knee jerk reactions. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I, I mean like any big company acquisition, it's going to take a long time. So it's just what's coming in the future. Um, which, which, which kind of brings us to, a, you know, a, a natural topic, right. Is wh what's in your future, Ken. <laughs> so, um, I'm, I'm assuming you don't mean, you, I, I'm yeah, not, not job changes, right. Yeah, you know. I, was, I was like, no, I'm not going anywhere. I, heck yeah. Uh, I'm good. <laughs> no. Um, yeah. So we got, we got a few things going on coming up. Um, I mean, one of the, one of the things I'll bring up, like not related to us, uh, or myself, but, um, we do have some upcoming, upcoming speakers coming on the podcast. So on the night, I think it's the 19th. I don't know. I have to look at the calendar in, in, so stay that says the fifth. Yeah. So yep. Yeah, 14 days. Nine, so June 19th, Alex Smolin's coming on. Um, I mentioned Rob Fuller, uh, Ken Toller. He, um, is coming on and Jim Manico. So we've got some pretty good speakers, some interesting perspectives, definitely people that work in different, um, aspects of both application security and security in general. So that's awesome. Um, yeah. and you and I have a, so the one thing we wanted to mention for sure is that you and I have a training course coming up at AppSec USA. Yeah, we and, got accepted. Um, so like we submitted, obviously the CFP process and we're, we're going to talk about a little bit about CFPs later on the podcast today. Uh, but, uh, we submitted a training proposal to AppSec USA to, to teach people about code reviews, right? Um, most of the current crop of code review courses that we see are very much geared towards specific technologies, right? So you go learn secure coding in for Node.js or secure coding for Java. Um, and, we, and we can talk to like Manico about this, to Jim Manico, because um, he's got a training company that he runs. And that's basically why he does is goes around and trains people on different things. Um, but as Ken and I were talking about it, like uh, a lot of our day-to-day -day lives is, is a code review methodology, right? It's not just, um, hey, we need to know how to like be able to code securely in one specific language. It's more the approach in general on how we go about uh, identifying vulnerabilities in code, whatever language that happens to be. And I think it's something that served like me personally well when approaching new languages, right? So if somebody throws a, an application in some new hipster language, right? Like I like to say, um, there's there are ways, there's the things that you can do and avenues that you can use to actually speed up the process to help you think about a code base and how to identify vulnerabilities, right? What happened was, what I think is funny is what what, what happened, because it was on this podcast, 
I don't know, we made we made a joke about like reading comments to do is or something like that in source code and somebody tweeted that out. And then you and I got to talking and we're like, we probably should just all these little tips and tricks, like probably should just put something together and then. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I, I'm hoping that there's going to be appetite for it. Right. Um, Cause there's a lot of people in our space that, that are doing some sort of application security or product security that may be coming from a development background or even a pen testing background, but you know, need some need some pointers on identity identifying you know things in code. Anyway, so that that's our little spiel on you know the course that's coming up. Watch for like uh, advertisement and stuff from AppSec USA. We'll obviously tweet out about it when it pops up and registration is open. Um, yeah. yeah I, I, Any thoughts? Yeah, I mean, well, I wanted to mention so because I know you've got. I mean, one of the things we wanted to talk about tonight, because I know you got Hacker track, Tracker also coming up. So that's another, so this was a, for AppSec USA, it was a CFT we responded to. Uh, this is a CFP call for papers for uh, Hacker Tracker that you, um, so you are going to be speaking at DEF CON, but we, uh, uh, well, first of all, uh, congrats on that. Thanks. <laughs> I should say that. That's all. And that's going to be uh, you and Whitney? Yeah. Yep. Yep. Short stack on Twitter. Um, she's the one that writes the Android version. And last year, when we were talking to Nikita and some of the DEF CON people about Hacker Tracker, they kind of suggested that we that, that that they at least wanted a walkthrough of Hacker Tracker for DEF CON 101 stuff. Right? Anybody who's new to DEF CON, hey, here's the app. This is how you use it. That kind of thing. Um, but we thought it would be more interesting to actually dive into the history of Hacker Tracker. And, you know, number one, why we wrote it, because it takes a fair bit of time, um, right? I mean, I think I'm on my like fourth year, something like that of, you know, putting hours and hours into something that, you know, for DEF CON and the first few years were not necessarily supported by DEF CON. They'd give us access to the schedule, but that was about it. Um, but so the talk's gonna be about Hacker Tracker, building it, our experiences with trying to serve, you know, hackers and the, and the, the infosec industry and get people to actually install something on their phones when everyone is uh, you know, doesn't want to, right? Um, and uh, you know it, it should be fun, right? Uh, it'll be a short intro into that and why we do it. Um, but it's it's always one of those things trying to get something accepted in a large conference like that. Um, I know I know Ken, you've spoken at RSA before um, with. With Chris, right? The- yeah, I think that was a one and done thing, man. That was, uh, oh, yeah, that was a that was an ordeal. That was a yeah. whole because they, 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 I mean, they want to have quality talks, so they put you through the ringer. Um, but you know, this, this, I guess I'm not going to be politically correct on this one. They like so they make you do a bunch of work and that conference makes a ton of money and they give you pretty much jack shit for it. They put you through the ringer. They make you do all kinds of stuff, which I totally get. You want to have some uh some uh you know, you want to have your speakers there, you want to have quality talks and you want people to pay a premium to get in and, and you want it to be good and all that stuff. And uh that's fine. I'm willing to follow some standards, but there was absolutely no recompense we should say there's no uh there was nothing done special for speakers i mean it was like literally uh traveling to switzerland for insomni hack 
which is a whole other topic of like how international conferences I feel are often better accommodating to speakers than domestic. But anyways, Switzerland, um, Switzerland to a small conference in Somniac, which I really enjoyed. Um, man, they took care of us as speakers, you know, really, really well. Um, and the same for the talk we just did in Brazil and, you know, RSA again, they've got the budget and, you know, they just, they put you through all that. And I guess the, the idea is like, we're RSA. So if you speak here, it's good for your career or it's good for your company, I guess. But I don't know, man, that's, how did I get off on that tangent? <laughs> well, no, no, we were talking about, you know, CFPs and talking at large conferences. Um, I, you know, part of me feels like it has a lot to do with the, uh, the amount of like who's running the conference. Right. Um, and it, you know, basically what the, what the purpose behind it is, um, I mean, there's quite a community behind DEF CON. It is really difficult to, to get a talk, talk accepted there without some sort of an in or at least like some new research, something that's fairly hot, right? Uh, Black Hat's related to that, but not so much anymore, right? Black Hat is now owned by, what is it, UBM or you know, whatever big conference company that is. So it's all about cost cutting and making sure that they preserve their margins for conferences. So, you know, however much people are paying, that's what they're, that's what they're looking at as the bottom line, as opposed to, you know, some of the community conferences where it's, all right, we're trying to make this as inexpensive as possible and as good as possible, because we're not trying to take a huge amount out of this, out of it, right? Um, yeah, and I mean, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, and I should say not, I just want to point out that not every, and not every conference, because like you said, there's there's these different demographics, what they're going for and all that. And I don't want to say like every domestic conference. I mean, like certainly like um, like LastCon's a good example. They treat their speakers really well. So that doesn't apply everywhere. And like you said, it does depend on, you know, the kind of conference that you're going to for sure. Right. So. But I would say RSA is definitely a money making event. Right. Like that's why that's what it is. It is a business networking money-making event. So that's my, I mean, I don't even know if they think that's my opinion. I think it's just the reality. Yeah. And, and you see that, right? Like those of us that have been to, to RSA, it's, it, it's not the same as going to Black Hat or DEF CON, right? It's very much, you know, business suit, um, you know, people actually wearing ties, which is not something you're going to find at DEF CON, right? It's just not. Um, maybe like, you know, I guess, you know, black and white or black and gold ball or whatever it is, right. That one night, but the rest of it is pretty, uh, yeah. Yeah. But I, that being said, I mean, what, what sort of feedback did you get for speaking at RSA? Right. Uh, did you, did you feel like there was any sort of a bump, uh, you know, personally with your brand or anything like that on Twitter for, or, you know, in the industry for having presented there? No, not really, man. Plus, I mean, like, uh, you know, I, I am who I am. I'm not, if I wanted to, if, you know, I guess what I'm trying to say is like, I didn't really do it for my brand. I happened to work for a company that needed it. And but besides that, I don't really, I don't you know, everybody should care about their brand a little bit. I'm just saying like, I didn't, I wasn't trying to get famous off that or security famous or whatever off that. That was just 
something that made sense at the time um, for the company I was working for. Yeah. And uh, I mean, the company we were working for at one point, I should say. And, um, but no, I didn't feel any huge bump. And then um, the the one thing I will say though, that was pretty cool is that I did get an interview. Chris and I got an interview at uh, on uh, with Steve Reagan from uh, CSO online. And that was pretty cool. That was at RSA. And if we hadn't been speaking there, we wouldn't have done that interview. So that in and of itself was kind of cool just because there was like an interview out there. That was kind of, that felt kind of cool. Um, you know, again, that hadn't been said, I'm sure all 10 people watched it. So it's not <laughs> like it's a, it was a huge bump or anything, but yeah, the process was really, was really difficult, which is one of the things we want to talk about was like, you know, CFPs and, um, <laughs> you know, like, what is it? Uh, I'm laughing. I can't, I shouldn't watch Slack and Twitter and all this stuff because it makes me laugh when I see stuff and I get distracted. <laughs> um, so what, da, 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 what's it going to say? All right. So we want to talk about CFPs and submitting them and uh, what works and what doesn't, I think is like, cause you and I were t- talking about this before we started, like just the rejection of um, conferences. Yeah. And we've been on, I think, correct me if I'm wrong. You've been on, I mean, I've definitely, I would say I haven't, I, only once did I look at speakers and grade them and it was for AppSec DC, but I've talked to so many people as they're going through the process of grading talks. So I'm at least somewhat familiar with that like process. Have you done a bit of grading of people's talks and, and all that? Um, just local conferences is all I've done, like the B-sides and the Hack West. Um, I, I do, like, I am good friends with... Uh, I mean, we work. We both worked with Nathan Hamill for a while. He's on the Black Hat Review Board, um, and I know Grifter uh, Neil as well. Um, and he does both Black Hat and DefCon talks. I mean, it's not an easy process by any stretch, especially once the conference gets big, um, and there are people that are looking to, you know. Uh, present original research, which is what something you always want as an information security conference, right? You want that that hit that, hey, guess what? This is this is where people come to actually reveal something or drop an O day. Uh, you know, I, I mean, as much as we like, kind of, you know, from the defensive side, it's like, all right, is that super interesting? Yes, it can be, but it's like, it does bring the the conference a lot of exposure, right? Um, but you know, from a from a yeah, what where am I going with this? I mean, just basically from the from the side of uh, someone that's reviewing talks, it's it it takes a lot of effort, right? And it's not only the the effort that the that the that the submitter puts into it, but also what the reviewer puts into it um, that you've got to take into account. Um, so, like when you are submitting a talk, you've got to realize what, who your audience is and how you need to stand out. Um, like uh, the, the easiest way to get accepted is obviously to know someone that's either on the review board or is organizing the conference, right? Uh, because they're going to look out for your talk and they probably won't be as critical or they at least know you as an entity, right? I mean, we know that Ken can go and speak at RSA. So, you know, Hey, it, it probably isn't. It's a safe bet that he could come to you know your local B sides or your local OWASP event and be engaging for an hour. Uh, that's fair. That's a fairly easy um, decision to make, right? 
I don't know how much truth there is to that, but <laughs> engaging for an hour. You know. For now, okay. If well, for I guess we do this podcast for an hour, we'll see how engaged people are. Yeah, but, exactly. Uh, <laughs> no, but yeah, I mean, and it's 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 definitely like it definitely comes down to the demographic of the conference, right? Because like we were talking about, some sometimes it's um, the research itself is what's drawing people to the conference, and then sometimes it's just like you'll see talks that you've seen somewhere else presented at a conference, and people are fine with it because it is a really compelling speaker, you know, and that's always a weird thing. It's like, you have to figure out if you're grading CFPs, you know, are, are you going for, oftentimes it's a mix, but there's certainly talks that can get in there that are just like, this person's a really compelling speaker. They're really good at this. And we've seen them over and over again, and they've got what you call a brand and they might be interesting to watch. And I've seen, and I, and actually, you know, like there's nothing, there's no harm in that. I've definitely seen talks that are like, they're not super elite or anything, but they're engaging. They're interesting. They, I sit there and I'm like, you know, at least I'm thinking after I watch them. So there's, I mean, in my opinion, there's nothing wrong with that. Like certainly, oh, certainly nice to have both. Having said that also some of the most boring talks I've seen are, I like the literally like the most boring talk I've ever seen from a, I shouldn't say boring. That's not the right word. Cause technically it was very interesting. It was the most technical talk I'd ever seen. It was at ShmooCon. For, I think the first year I went to ShmooCon, it's like, I went to ShmooCon and I, you know, that was the, that talk and that conference and that year was like when I was like solid on security. I was like, this is amazing. This is, these are, these are my people. This is awesome. But in terms of it being a good talk, it was probably one of the worst talks I've seen in terms of, you know, the things that you talk about with verbal tics and with, awkwardness on stage and with delivery and all that stuff. So, but it was, it was, it was back then. This is years. I mean, this is probably eight years ago. This is on FPGAs and that was pretty interesting, pretty new. Um, so that, that was really cool. Um, yeah. I, and yeah. you know, Brian's bringing that up in the Slack channel, how sometimes a great abstract can be a train wreck presentation, right? It's very hard to gauge, you know, when the, the presentations come into you for the CFPs, like all those submissions get there, that the person that's submitting it can actually engage people, can actually talk. Um, and then he's saying the same thing, right? So he's helping put together B-Sides, PGH. Um, and he, they tried to do blind submissions and it didn't go as well as they had hoped, right? And... I... I, I yeah. Yeah, that I've seen that. I've seen that happen. And it's it's just as you said, it doesn't go as well as you plan. You don't that I think the idea is well, I'm pretty sure the idea is to remove bias, right? To yeah. remove corporate bias, to remove gender bias, to remove um some of those things. But Again, you have to factor in what level of like, it's okay, because I think it's always hard because you want to have a certain percentage of just interesting talks. But again, you also want to have a good percentage of interesting speakers. So being yeah. technical and being a good speaker are not always the same thing, which is, you know, I hate to burst well, anyone's a, bubble out there. <laughs> yeah, it's, it, it's a different skill set for sure, right? Um, I mean, I, I remember being terrified to speak you know, earlier in my career, just purely from the whole, um, you know, fear of, you know, of not knowing enough, not being able to actually answer questions. Um, 
the imposter syndrome. And I know we've talked about that before. I, you know, I know it was uh, even on our first episode, right? You know, that we talked a little bit about filling that imposter syndrome and trying to overcome it and realizing that everybody else has felt it at some point in their career. Um, but it's really hard to get over that. Um, even when you're evaluating talks, right? Cause I, you know, I see talks come into like, you know, HackWest this last year, and you know, as I'm looking through them and we're trying to do something that's similar to a blind submission process. So the reviewers only have the abstract and certain things, um, but that's, it's, it's all, it's, you know, we try to weight it a little bit with, you know, the people that actually know who submitted the talks because, uh, but, you know, the, 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 the level of technicality that comes across in the abstracts at times just just blows me away, right? You go look at any information security conference and it's like, wow, I could go to, you know, 15 of these talks and probably learn something in each one um, just based on the abstract alone. Whether or not the talk actually reflects that is a different is a different story. And I think that's where we run into issues is that it's, uh, you know, even, even a black hat and a DEF CON, right? Um, just because someone has started that research doesn't necessarily mean it's going to match the level of expectation that that comes out in the abstract. Um, and I know we're kind of running down a rabbit hole here on you know on CFPs. I mean, uh, Jason on Slack is asking about requiring some sort of sample video. Yeah, I mean, I was going to mention. Uh, Regarding Jason's comment, uh, so whenever I, I, well, I can't say always, but most of the time when I submit, I do try to give prior art, we'll call it, so links to previous talks and um, in the hopes that that helps. I don't know if you can require it for everyone. There might be somebody who's kind of coming out of their shell. They might have, I mean, one thing, you know, as a speaker, I recommend doing, and I learned this from Chris Gates, was uh, just go to meetups before you do the big presentation, just local meetups. The double-edged sword with that though, is like um, why I'm mentioning that is, you know, you could have that recorded, but the problem is now it's recorded and the talk you're going to give for the first time at this conference and at any conference now it's out on the web. So the best thing to do is if it's your first, I think it's, if it's this person's first talk, it's probably just, um, you know, you can always have a conversation with them, I suppose, about like, hey, do you plan to practice, you know, at, at meetups or, or do something along those lines? But for anyone who has spoken before, I do think it it makes sense to ask for at least ask for it uh, for like previous talks that they've done that they've that have been recorded. I think that makes sense. But them doing it at home is not the same. The, the reason I'm saying this is because the question was, you know, a sample video, but a sample video, if it's not, if it's done at like home, that is not the same as, you know, doing it live where you're, you've got people staring at you and you have to make sure you don't get lost in your head, which is a huge problem, was a huge problem for me. Um, and uh, I obviously still is on the podcast, but you know, it can, it can, you can stumble, you've got people, the pressure of people watching you. And um, I just, yeah, I don't think it's the same thing as uh, showing previous and and uh, and then on uh, you know on the I guess what we should say is what are people looking for with CFPs? I mean, Seth, you have a better con. I can tell you like what elsewhere, right? But 
I don't know what DEFCON and Black Hat's looking for. And I think that that might be probably the most interesting because obviously that's that's typically where people want to end up speaking is DEFCON and Black Hat. Yeah. Um, what I found, it, you know, this is, you know, actually the first time that I spoke at both Black Hat and DEFCON, I, you know, I was lucky enough to, to speak with Nathan, right, Hamill. Um, and he had kind of, it, it's almost like a, a puzzle that you've got to crack, right? Like you, you, not only do you have to have something that's kind of innovative and you're willing to put the time in and to do the research and to do the paper and all, everything that's required, but you've also got to put together a, you've got to spend almost as much time putting together your CFP and your abstract to actually get it accepted. Um, and even then there is no guarantee that that's going to happen. Um, the one thing that you've got to realize with both those conferences is the number of talks that they get means that uh, they're rejecting probably at least 90, 95% of the talks that come in. Wow, that's a huge rejection. Yeah, it, I mean, it, it, it may be interesting to talk to Nathan a little bit about that or maybe even get Neil on, um, but the, the rejection rate is pretty high uh, just because they get you know thousands of CFP submissions and, you know, your talk may overlap 50% with another one. And that guy's got a working exploit already for whatever, you know, technology that you're working with. And guess what? They're going to go with that one, even though your like approach may be more valid. Um, but if somebody has got a working exploit, then all of a sudden they get a little bit of a bump. They get a little bit of a preference. Right. Um, so, the expectation that you're just going to get accepted the first time you try is, you know, should not be there. Um, some of the other conferences, uh, you know, definitely if you put a lot of thought into the CFP, that's where, you, you know, you probably can push that a little bit, especially if you contact the organizers before you submit, right? Uh, I found um, actually like talking to the, um, the organizers, and asking them what they're looking for is a huge help. Sometimes they'll tell you on the actual like website for the 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 conference itself, but just reaching out and saying, "Hey, I've got all these talks that I've given in the past. What is something that you would be looking for?" Uh, and then I'll put my CF or I'll put my CFP together after that, or I'll put my abstract together and you know build a new talk based on what I know for your conference. Uh, that seems to work pretty well. But again, you know, the, the target for you know, speaking at Black Hat and DEF CON, and that's definitely something that everyone should shoot for, right? If you, if you enjoy public speaking and you want to get your name out there, there's probably no better way to do that. Uh, but the bar is pretty high nowadays, right? I, like, I think about some of the talks that we gave in the past, right? My first time, I think, was 2011. Um, and I don't know if it would make it today. Like, you know, it just happened to be that, you know, in that current climate, it works. And it was an interesting topic and people came and, you know, we, we did all right. And even the second time, the, the next time, the next year that I spoke on, you know, like the iOS stuff, it was just a, you know, a congruence of, hey, this is what's going on in the industry. And I happen to be at the right place at the right time. So people want to talk about this and they want to engage on this level. Um, nowadays, it'd be a lot more difficult. I don't know if my like uh, mobile testing skills or my tools are as interesting to a wider scope. Um, again, the the conferences you have to remember are trying to apply their 
their brand and what they're trying to accomplish in their audience. They're trying to bring more people in based on the speakers that they select. Right. Um, yeah, so was 2011 raft the response analysis fuzzing tool. Yes. Yeah. So 2011 was raft 2012 was Sierra. Um, and then, you know, last year I gave the talk on, um, security testing, right. Security unit testing, the sputter framework. Uh, so, but you know the other thing that I've realized when it comes to those ones is originality is the key. Right? This is not something that you're going to be able to, you know, go and speak at six months before. Um, it is very much, hey, uh, they want exclus exclusivity. So if it's a talk that you've given before, you get ranked lower. I mean, if you have a, you know, if you're a big name, then maybe you can go back and speak again and again. I mean, I always used to give that like. I, it used to kind of like tick me off. You'd watch Dan Kaminsky speak every year, right? And it was the same DNS exfiltration talk that he had given, you know, a year prior, but he had just updated it. But he was such a big name that it you, you couldn't fault him, right? Everybody wanted to get into his talk. So, you know, why not? Yeah. That. By the way, I actually enjoyed that talk, the, the RAF talk. And yeah. Yeah, the Dan Kaminsky talk, I remember that being... It was kind of a running joke in the community for a while, because it was... Yeah. Yeah. He is a great speaker. This is one of those... The, all right, well, because there was that talk, and then there was, like, the one from him with... I don't know. I think it was... The other running joke was, like, fixing SQL injection with base 64 encoding or, or some shit like that. I remember it was a long time ago. But um, regardless, very good speaker. I mean, you, you can't take that away from him. He's very interesting as a speaker. Um, but uh, I haven't really kept up with his work since then. Not to get off on, on another topic. But uh, I think one thing people don't, like submitters, because I think sometimes there's conferences like ShmooCon where if you submit, you get a free ticket regardless or something like that. Or at least, I, and I think they've changed that now so that it, like it has to be a legit submission because they were getting kind of half-assed half -assed submissions. But yeah, I mean, that's that should be obvious, but it's not as, I mean, it's it's not as obvious as, as it sounds like apparently because you, you do see a good amount of like really sort of half-assed submissions where you're like, okay, well, so, you know, pick a good title. Here's some basics. Pick a good title, something that's somewhat interesting or stands out. And if you saw it on, think of it like this way. If you looked on a uh, piece of paper, uh, you know, a, a schedule, would that be something that would stand out to you or catch your attention? So that's that's the first thing. And then in terms of the description, be very descriptive in exactly what you're going to talk about. Fill out all the th fill out all the things if they want to know if it's a 30 minute or a 40, you know, if it's a 20 minute fire talk or if it's a full 45 minutes you know, explain all the little points, especially if it's a 45 minute talk of what you're going to cover um, and create a, you know, little short abstract that looks good on the reason they ask you for a long abstract and a short abstract again, should be obvious, but the, the long abstract is you tell us exactly what this is all going to be about. And the short, I mean, exactly. What are you going to run through exactly in your talk? And is it going to fill up the space? And is it going to be interesting and maintain? That's what we need to know by judging your, to, to judge your talk. And then for a short abstract, this is the piece that's very likely going to end up on the um, website, on Skedged, uh, whatever. Like that's, that's going to be what people who attend are going to see. So just put yourself in the shoes of an attendee. 
you know, that's probably the best way. I mean, put yourself in the shoes of an attendee as well as the people that are going to review your talk. They don't, they may not know you. I mean, especially if they don't, you know, if, if you're, if you're not super well-known or you, you don't know a lot of people. And I mean, you have to, you have to think about like that. They, they don't know you from Adam and you have to sort of explain yourself on paper in your talk. So, uh, anything to add to sort of how to write a good CFP, Seth? Yeah, I, I, I actually just linked it on the, the YouTube, um, channel, uh, the, what was super helpful to me, especially when I was doing black hat on my own was reading through the sample submissions, right? Ones that they had picked up in the past, because exactly what you're saying is what you're reading is like, Oh, you know, actually coming up with four or five different titles and then running them by people makes it a lot easier, right? actually getting some feedback on your submission itself. Like we're not even talking about the research that you're going to do, but Hey, guess what? I'm thinking, I'm, I'm thinking about having an abstract to do this research and using it as a, uh, as an impetus for you to actually spur that research along. Um, there, there is a lot of time that goes into it. There's papers, there's all sorts of things, but I, I linked those sample submissions uh, Black Hat is really good about providing, you know, stuff that was popular the last year that got high ratings from their CFP reviewers. And it's it, it's a big help, right? Um, and you, not all conferences demand that level, especially when you're talking about some of the B-Sides conferences, you know, the volunteer conferences that are run. Uh, but stepping through their CFP uh, submission form or process you know, think about someone that has to read, you know, a hundred of those or 30 of those to decide on the 10 that they want to choose. And that's going to give you a, you know, put yourself in their shoes. That's going to give you a better shot at actually getting your submission accepted. But again, you know, a rejection notice from a conference is not necessarily a, hey, you know, this is just complete crap. Um, it just may not be something that they're looking for, right? You know, a you know, submitting a security talk at a, a developer conference, right? They may or may not have space for that. May, they may only be looking for one security talk and there were five that were submitted. Uh, you, you just, you, you kind of have to separate your own like emotional state about your topic and about your talk from the acceptance level. I, I mean, in general. Well, yeah. And I mean, like with OWASP, and I don't know if this is the case all the time, but it was the case when we were doing the uh, AppSec DC. And I heard it's similar for other OWASP conferences where um, they like, let's imagine you uh, are, you know, you're not a, I don't know, you're not a, you're not a chapter lead. You're not a um, project leader. You're not a, uh, uh, you haven't done an OWASP talk before your con your topic is not about anything OWASP related. Like there is definitely a point system like, okay. So say for instance, I submit a talk for Ruby on rails security and, and I bring into the fold rails go, which I have done. Um, okay. At that, at that point, depending on the conference, if it's an OWASP conference, I might get points for being the project leader on that like literal points for ranking. And then there's the additional like point structure of just, you know, what everybody else goes through as well. So you might end up getting ranked higher. Just, it's just, it just depends on the conference, what the requirements are. And it also might be that like you have, um, 
the same exact topic as somebody else. And that person has spoken at the conference before and did really well. And, yep. and you know, it, it's just, it don't take it as a personal thing. I mean, cause you know, I've been rejected. Seth's been rejected. If you, if you're speaking, you've been rejected like period. So don't let that dishearten you. And uh, here's a hint though. Uh, you know, if you do get accepted, right. Like it, uh, I don't know. I, I mean, Amazon like reinvent or something like that. Take a look at the mobile app. Cause you can probably give yourself high marks in the, you know, on the, on the grading. <laughs> no, one, no one ever like submits feedback. There's very few people that do. So, and if there's IDOR, then it, you can probably give yourself even better marks from multiple people. Just saying, right? Like that's probably, yeah, sorry. Yeah. I, I, I found it funny when I was playing. It was like a local conference here, big data. Uh, it was like big mountain data conference. So it was not necessarily related to security. I think there was only like five or 10 people in my talk, you know. The live and, hacking Oh yeah. Yeah. I was doing live hacking in that one. Right. For sure. But part of it was I was playing with their, you know, like their uh, review system and, you know, comment system. And so I, you know, I gave myself like five or six different reviews and then they email me a week later with them all like nice and collated in this email of all the comments that I gave to myself. It was kind of fun. Yeah. <laughs> if, if I, I remember you tell, tell me about that. That was like, just imagine you're the conference. <laughs> conference organizer you have this mobile app and one of your speakers is is poning your app as you which i think was like the the kickoff for you where it started with like i mean maybe you're i don't want to ruin your surprise maybe that's part of hacker tracker talk but oh no like yeah you've 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 screwed up so many i remember sitting at reinvent with you like trying to trying to pwn their app well i mean for research and science purposes research and science purposes yeah, that was the one where we could friend anyone based on IDOR, right? That was fun. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Actually, we should mention, speaking of talks, Stefan has a talk coming up at Curion, which is, I mean, no pressure, right? They they said, like, this is the most, I have a link to it, the, the tweet. Hold on. It says, this is going to be the most exciting conference talk you'll ever see. Like, what do you do with that? I mean, where do you go from there? And I'll post this link in, but basically he's going to, I guess there's going to be some vulnerabilities that he's going to have the team or sorry, this, the attendees be the red team. And then he's going to be the blue team and defend against those hacks using, um, which we, we need to have him on again and just explain all this, but um, I guess using type system and compiler settings uh, those are the the things he's going to uh, use to def- just the language itself, like safe, sane defaults in the languages. I guess he's going to use, but this is Curion Conf, and uh, I'm going to put it into the Slack and the YouTube chat Sweet. as well. No, that should be good. I mean, you know, just just make sure you have Google ready if you're going to any of Stefan's talk because he's going to use words that you need to look <laughs> up, right? Yeah, yeah, he def, yeah, he he's he's a smart guy. That's yeah, there's is. no doubt. So, um, yeah, yeah, and uh, let's see, is there anything in terms of like other talk? I just want to make sure I'm going back to our list here. I want to make sure I admit, if anybody had a cool talk coming up that we saw, I didn't miss it. I was just, gosh, I am not. No, Brian, 
Yeah, Brian keeps bringing up besides PGH, right? Um, yes. Other things. I, I mean, you know, everybody that's been in the industry has seen these, like the the talks that get recycled. I mean, you know, I'm guilty of this for sure. Because um, you know, kind of taking one topic and then using it for a year or so or six months, and you know, farming it out to different small meetups and things like that. But that's different from you know actually using it against you know some of those big conferences you know they ask you right up front if you've given the talk before you know they're not going to accept something that is uh, that has been you know used right yeah i mean and it's like i said and so for those that are watching i mean what i said in rebuttal to that in slack was uh well not rebuttal but just more like okay there are definitely times where okay um uh, there's a conference in uh, Virginia and then there's a conference in Maryland and you're submitting the same talk, mm, you know, but, but let's say that there's a conference in um, San Jose and then there's a conference in Virginia and the speaker's good and the topic's I- interesting and the talk itself is interesting. Well, I mean, that's, that's fine to me. That's fine. I, I think that's because you've got different attendees spread just people, the different people attending most likely. Right. I mean, uh, depends on the conference might have some folks that are, but then in that case, the, the folks that came from the other one, the, the, the small handful that had been to the one in San Jose, if it was like a big conference, right. I mean, then that frees them up to go see another talk anyway. So I don't know, like it, I think it's fine if it's like that geographically spread out and again, interesting speaker and whatnot. Yeah. I um, don't know. I've, I've gotten in trouble before, right. That, well, not in trouble. But, you know, I've spoken a lot down in Phoenix. I go down there, you know, fairly often. I used to work for a company that's down there, but I've gone down and done meetups like OWASP, Phoenix. I, you know, my, the organizer's a friend. So I've been down there a few times and spoken. And then CactusCon as well, Andrew, that runs that. I've spoken there. Um, but one of those times that I went down for OWASP or whatever, I recycled like one of my experience stories, but in a different context. And some guy raises his hand at the end. He's like, well, didn't you, didn't you tell that same story at cactus con? And I was like, yeah, you got me. Right. I, I definitely <laughs> did. <laughs> but oh, guess I what? called I you out. Huh? Uh, you know, but yeah. Well, I mean, and to be fair, speaking of cactus con, I'm, I'm actually, I was just talking to Chris before our Brazil talk. I was like, Hey man, you know, cause you had brought it up. Uh, like we're all friends with Andrew. I'm like, I should probably reach out to him and see if, you know, Cactus Con might have any interest in, you know, this kind of a talk. And then I'll put, put in through the official CFP. Uh, I'm waiting on Chris to, to see if he wants to do it. But um, yeah, I mean, like that's an example of, okay, we did the talk once in Brazil and it wasn't recorded. Like it's perfectly fine in my mind to go give that same talk somewhere else. And also yeah. the tool will be farther along. So the, t- the talk will be a, a bit different, but like when we did uh, the DevOps talk, uh, we probably did the DevOps talks, three places a year, roughly, um, like conferences, we adjusted the material each time. Like sometimes it was more AWS, sometimes it was more, I don't know, like Redis and Memcache or whatever, like tool we were picking apart. Um, so like having the, that's different from having the same exact talk, I think. Um, but, uh, yeah, so we want to do that. Um, since we're hitting an hour here, I did want to mention a few things before we, uh, get going. Okay. Um, so like one of the things that I want to, we were talking about this earlier today in Slack and I really want to get together a survey and I'll probably take your advice and use SurveyMonkey and we'll put this together. I think you and I will end up 
collaborating on this to get this survey out, but basically an unbiased, unlike marketing company, marketing wing of some bug bounty company. Like I'm interested in some, some, you know, some facts around bug bounties from everyday researchers standpoints, not like there's nothing wrong with having like the top 10 researchers, but that's not really what I'm going for. I'm interested in the average person's experience. You know, how much time does it take to find a bug? What's the average payout for them? What's the, um, a average severity? What's the average, you know, uh, uh, what is it? Rejection, uh, percentage, uh, those sorts of things. So if you have as a viewer, you have any suggestions on things you'd like to see added to that survey, I want to get that together in the next week. So, uh, if you have suggestions, send that to absolute appsec at gmail.com or paste it in the Slack channel, um, or DM us. I think the DMS are open. Um, so whatever way you want to contact us, uh, I'll add those in, but that's something I'm like a little personal research project just out of pure curiosity. And I wanted to, wanted to, uh, no, I, there. yeah, I, I mean, that should be interesting, especially because we run into bug bounties again and again, right? I mean, we, we've talked about it multiple times on the podcast. We had Jason Haddix on. I mean, I'd like to have him on again at some point. Um, but the mechanics of that, like how realistic is it that people, you know, actually, you know, make, make money on it? You know, how much time do they need to spend? How much experience do they need to do something like that? Um, and then you've got like your your big bug bounty programs like Hacker One and Bug Crowd and Synac, um, and then you've got smaller ones that are like the company itself is running it, um, and it's just some small, medium sized you know online company. What what sort of feedback do you see there? I, like I, I feel like there's a lot of like opportunity to actually talk through that and give people some pointers. And you know, at some point, well, we may even throw up a blog on, you know, absolute AppSec and talk through some of this, or at least give hints or point people towards specific directions. But it may, it, like, but I want it, I want it to be realistic, right? Um, I know what my experience has been, right? And you know what yours has, but it would be interesting to see that wide swath across, across the industry. Because there's people, not everybody is in that top 10. Not everybody's spending 40 hours a week plus doing bug bounty programs. Um, and whether or not it's paying out for them is probably an interesting data point, right? Yeah, I mean, there's there's plenty of material out there from the top bug bounty people. There's plenty of material out there from the bug bounty companies. I was just reading a blog post that I shared with you today, and I'll put it in here. It's uh, on Hacker New Hacker Noon, um, and it you know it tells you, hey, look, this is you probably can't spend a, and this is common. I do feel like that's pretty much common sense, like you can't spend just a few hours on a target and expect to find something like you need to know how, uh, what you're attacking, you know, what, what it, like, what's its functionality, what's its purpose, all that stuff. But again, I think there's this, like, there's not enough data that I found from just your average researchers in an unbiased format. So definitely want to find, uh, uh, definitely want to find out the, uh, let's see the other, the other things are, uh, uh, doo -doo -doo. oh yeah, just, <laughs> it was more of a, like, a, a like a, a WTF just, I guess this is the same. And we talked about it in the absolute AppSec Slack chat, 
But to catch folks up, there's like this, I'm gonna put this link in YouTube. Basically, Jenkins came came out with, I mean, they've got SSRF, CSRF. They're, I mean, it's, uh, it's, you know, it's a lot of it's in plugins, security issues in their plugins. So I shouldn't <clears throat> solely point at uh, Jenkins. I should just say that this is a list of Jenkins plugins that are vulnerable and that they've, uh, put some information out on, but like, this is, I mean, and I think it was Jason white who brought up the point. Like, I think this is some, I forget exactly what he said, but the point was, uh, um, uh, gosh, now I want to go back and see exactly what he said. Um, so I don't misquote him. Um, but the gist was, can I find it? Let's see here. I don't want to misquote him. That's the, silence on air <laughs> oh so he said yeah he said um he made a good point which is this is a this is truly considered like a hostile jenkins is kind of considered you have to think of it as like a hostile system but like it's going to host your source code meaning like and we and again uh, in our devops talks we had actually talked about this like it's obvious to say like don't put jenkins outside the perimeter that's a very obvious thing even though if you go on shodan right now you'll find jenkins systems outside the perimeter but then you know even further you have to be careful of segregating uh, jenkins within your perimeter uh, from vital systems you're giving it source code so you you do have to be i mean you you I, yeah, I, I, it makes me nervous. It, that Jenkins makes me nervous. And this is just another, you know, another example of, uh, of that. So I put well, the link in there. You I can mean, take a look. You know, where Jenkins does make you nervous. I, I, I remember Jenkins from your DevOps talks. I know I've played around with it. Like the, 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 the amount of ways that you can screw that up and that, uh, like security advisory from yesterday, right? It's mostly plugins, but, I mean, the amount of stuff that you could do with those plugins would be amazing, right? Um, I did think it was ironic that Black Duck had two plugins that had issues. Yeah. And they're, it's like an update on vulnerable dependencies of your Jenkins. And those dependencies are a tool that finds vulnerable dependencies. So that was just, it happens. Everybody who creates software creates vulnerabilities. And it's not a big deal. I mean, it is. You know what I mean? Like it ha- it does happen, but it was just kind of funny to me. Well, wh- I mean, what's your recommendation then, right? Like let's dig into it a little bit. You know, if you if you can't use Jenkins or you don't want to use something like that, where else do you go? Well, I would say, first of all, with L- Jenkins, limit the plugins that you absolutely have to use. You and I have done this before where we actually did set up Jenkins and we actually had to use it in production and it had to be secure. So what do we do? We limited... Um, the environment of execution that it would like, meaning like uh, we ran it in a virtualized uh, segregated uh, machine where it could only access like network wise. It was completely set up. It was in the cloud and in the cloud, it was completely isolated network wise from, um, from other machines. Sorry, my son's. Hi, buddy. Yeah, yeah, he's poking his head in. Um, so it was separated from other networks and other machines on, on, on yeah, so, the network. Yeah, so you're taking a layered security approach, right? Yeah, same so as anything. Utilizing it. I, I mean, one thing, to get we, to were, it. we were worried about RCE, right? Um, I mean, we, to, we were building untrusted code in that. 
in that environment. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> not, not to give away too many secrets, but yeah, that, that, that was, you know, kind of the, the threat factor, the threat model that we had built around it is, huh, what happens when somebody actually, you know, writes some code and when we do the build script or whatever, it actually makes a call out. It's trying to do something it shouldn't be able to do. We've got to be able to isolate it and shut that down or disallow it pretty quickly. Um, so, I mean, we, we were almost coming at it from a different perspective than, hey, Jenkins might be the thing that's, that's going to that's gonna cost us in the long run. Um, but the approach is very similar because it is remote code ex execution that we're worried about. Yeah, the, I, well, you know, I don't think it matters anymore because the company that I worked for doesn't exist formally anymore. But there was a breach at a, uh, what is it, a, uh, what did you call them, a group discount kind of company that, that I happened to work at. And, uh, you know, th that was, from what I understand, I wasn't actually working there at the time, but from what I understand, uh, this was, Jenkins was involved. Um, it's just, yeah, it's it's just not a great system. And um, I think one other thing, too, is to even get to Jenkins, we put it, uh, I mean, we talked about it inside the perimeter, but we use like a VPN to even get to it. So there are things you can do outside of that. I mean, you have to remember like, so you can run like, it depends on your environment, but like with AWS, you've got your, uh, um, what is it? I'm trying to remember. We did that. We used this before. It was code builds or code pipeline. Code pipeline, I want to say, code which pipeline. had. Yep. Oh, right, right. So, which had code build, which you could then bake in tests so that when you pushed, when you pushed code that code pipeline was watching, it would pull from your source, like GitHub or whatever AWS is, is code commit, I think, or something like that. So then it would detect that change, pull in the code, run tests using code build. And I think we did this to run Breakman or whatever we were running. And then if it passes, cool. If it fails, the code does not proceed any farther down the code pipeline. I believe that's how it was set up. Yeah. No, it, it, it was, right? You know, I I don't know. And that would be interesting, you know, if you want to take a look at Amazon. But I, I'm sure it's violating your terms of service, service on your AWS account. If you try to start calling out from the builds and you know, to, to actually see what they're using behind the scenes. Um, but I'm sure, I'm sure those guys have done that sort of a threat model, the same thing that you and I went through when we were trying to run untrusted code. So it's probably built in a specific location. It's isolated. If it makes it, you know, it just gets black holed. And then, you know, when they're done, they just wipe that code directly off that machine and move on. Um, but I mean, AWS is a whole nother host of issues, right? When we start talking Lambda and untrusted code and everything else that goes on inside there, uh, I, I can't imagine the sleepless nights that those, that security team has. I just, <laughs> well, and if you didn't, I don't know if Chris talked about it, but in our, our weird out talk, it, even funnier, one thing I didn't even realize is that when you like one of the functions in this weird out tool, when you call the API for Lambda, you can get back a link. And that link allows you to download the source code. I think I don't know if it's like a temporary link or a permanent link. I don't really remember, but you do get a link to download all the source code that's in Lambda, which is oh my! And you can re-upload, you can change the code and re-upload it uh, back to Lambda. So, like, let's say Lambda's got permissions to interact with KMS and decrypt something. Well, cool. You can totally like 
right in a line that says, take that, do yeah, sure, decrypt that KMS key and send it to me. And that'll work. You can just re-upload the code and, and it's good to go. I mean, that, this is all saying if you've got a stolen key with the permissions to act slammed, I should say that. But yeah, um, but yeah like it's AWS obviously has its well, own well, other set of... Yeah, and, and you know, you know, speaking of that, like we talked about Weird Al last week, but like I, I, I told you, like the end of last week, I got into a code repository. Somebody had posted their AWS keys into the code. Man, I like all of a sudden I've got access to their root account, and I was using Weird Al to actually enumerate through everything that I could possibly see. Right? It was, it was, it was awesome. I'll just say it was super useful. So if anybody hasn't played with Weird Al yet, has access to keys. They should. That's all. You know, there's, there's my little plug for that. Thanks, man. Yeah, we should make. We definitely have to do some stuff to make it a, a, a little bit easier to use. I've realized. Um, but you know, it's a project that's ongoing, and you know, I spend a couple. I just spent a couple hours doing something on it uh, yesterday or the day before. I can't remember. I think it was Sunday night. But yeah, so we'll just keep plugging away at it, and hopefully, people find it interesting. But yeah, so. In, in terms of alternatives to Jenkins, I don't, you know, what are the other the popular ones are like Circle CI, Travis CI. They all have their ups and downs. You know, if you're talking about, like, I think one of the huge benefits is that you can host Jenkins. Uh, you have complete control over it. Um, and whereas if you're using something that's like a, a hosted SaaS type solution, then not so much. So, yeah, just depends on your preference and your, your uh, threat model, we'll say. Which is a yeah. We keep going back to that threat model, right? This this episode for some reason, but that probably because I had to do threat models for a client recently and <laughs> about cyber criminals versus you know nation state attackers. It's always it's always interesting. Um, cool. Uh, let's see what else is going on, man. Um, I think we probably uh, covered everything that we had on the agenda. So yeah. Yeah, I mean, if you if you've got questions, the other thing is right. Chris last week talked about you know mentors and actually helping people out. If people are interested and in, like they're, they're writing a CFP, you know, jump on Slack. Hit us a hit hit me up on a DM, right? Like I have no problems reviewing an abstract and telling you, hey, guess what? You probably need to change this or this. Um, I've got some experience with it, and that's you know, I'd 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 be happy to see other voices actually in the community speak out. People that aren't as experienced as you or I, um, just because you you haven't given a talk before doesn't mean the stuff that you're bringing to the table isn't interesting, right? We've 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 had this discussion. We talked about it with Charles a little bit as well. Is that there's there's a lot of different viewpoints rather than just the viewpoint that you and I have, and some of the most interesting talks and the interesting attacks that I've seen have come from people outside of the traditional info information security industry or application security industry because they understand things in a different way and they think about it in a different way. So if you're interested, you know, if you want some feedback, let me know. I'd, I'd be more than happy to jump in and do something like that. Yeah. Yeah. And if you're, uh, um, interested in joining the podcast for an episode we are also always uh looking for folks i, I think i even asked jason white um uh, so he i don't know if we came to a determination on it i think he said he was up for it so um always interested in hearing like you said everybody's sort of opinions that's sort of the point even like rob where i started off in the beginning just as an example i started off in the podcast and i don't agree with his opinion but that's fine that's perfect that's why like 
that's good. We should have discussions where we, you know, have civil civil discourse. That's that's good. Yeah, I can't remember. I think we did a podcast with Rob years ago, right? And I remember we like argued about I can't remember what it was, but there was something on there, right? You know, everybody's got a different opinion and a different take based on where they're coming from and what they see. And that's good. And if it was all the same, we wouldn't, yeah, we wouldn't be able to push things forward much at all. So. Yep. It, that one should definitely be interesting. I mean, they all are to me, but okay. cool, man. Um, thanks everybody for watching for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, thanks for joining sure. today, listening to our rants. Um, and you know, I know we keep saying that we're going to get other stuff up on the website. Uh, we'll post, you know, get into Slack. Obviously Ken and I are pretty active on Slack and on Twitter. Um, you can engage with us there, but you know, hopefully we'll have the, the MP3s up soon enough on those other, on those other mediums. So, and I just want to say to David Corsi, start jujitsu and I will come to besides Augusta and we'll, uh, we'll, we'll roll. But you got you got to get over your you got to get over your shoulder injury first, and then we'll and then we'll roll in Augusta in Augusta. So I'll, I'll let the two of you roll around in Augusta. Actually, I wouldn't. Yeah, maybe I'll submit too. That'd be a fun one to come out to. Yeah, it's not too. It's heck. You know, I I, I enjoy. Um, the, I actually had said in Slack I enjoy the the B sides conferences and so. Cool. All right. Thanks, everybody. We'll talk soon. All right. Later. Bye.